Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. I'm glad that you tuned in with us today. And uh, I want to start off with this thought. The desire for popularity starts in all of us when we're young. Think about that. And if you're like me, some of our worst childhood memories go back to the fear of being unpopular. Do I get an amen? Now, I'm not sure about you, but I remember the feelings I had when we separated during either recess or gym class. And uh, there was always two captains who were chosen to pick teams, right? And usually they were either the most popular or the most athletic kids of the group, right? I was never captain, just throwing it out there. And then I would always find myself wondering who would be picked first. And everybody in the group would always put up their hand or open their mouth by saying, me, pick me, pick me first, right? Of course, I would always so always wonder if I would be the one who would be left at the end. Um, you know, the one who has the feelings of being unwanted by either captain, if you know of which I speak. Anyway, it sounds silly, but it's actually true. Um, there was a fear that I had that I would either say or do something or wear something that would get me labeled when I was in school as somebody who was uncool or out of the, the group, right? Some of my worst childhood experiences was finding or trying to find myself in the place of trying to be cool. Um, you know, my family didn't have a whole lot of money. And, you know, it's not that we were dirt poor. It's just that we didn't have a whole lot of money for uh, outside things. I had the necessary stuff. But I also never had the, the coolest name brand clothing. And, you know, all the kids had Jordash jeans. I was still wearing Star jeans. All the cool kids had Adidas runners. I was still wearing North Stars, if you track what I'm saying to you. And so even as adults, though, we have these deep-down feelings of our own desire to be endorsed by others... And I think a lot of times those feelings have not left us. You know, we may want to be popular, right, with our fellow employees or with our boss or our neighbors. Um, we may even try or struggle to be popular in our culture, so to speak, right? There's these cultural expressions of popularity, so-called TV shows or reality shows, right? And, and it, you know, you get the opportunity to vote for your favorite singer or cheer for your favorite bachelor or bachelorette, and at times... Maybe we even wish that we were in their place. And I think what happens is that sometimes we even go through great lengths to create the illusion of being popular. Why? Because we want acceptance from others, don't we? Like, how bad can it get? Well, I was doing some research and I stumbled across an article back from 2017 that the BBC posted. And it was of a man who got arrested in China because he hired over 200 guests to come to his wedding. Yeah, I just said that. He hired 200 people to come to his wedding as guests. So, you know, again, it's supposed to be the most important day of the bride's life, but, uh, you know, this fairy tale wedding uh, turns into a nightmare, and her groom is actually arrested. Her family has been uh, figured out really quickly that they were actually tricked out of over $200,000, and the marriage is deemed invalid. Like, you got to think, what kind of motivation does it take for somebody to do this? Um, the bride and the groom, they were to get married in this big wedding in a hotel in northern China. The groom's parents didn't show up, and that actually got the bride a little suspicious. And there was, you know, half the tables were empty, but you had these reserved guests who still showed up, and it caused more suspicion, like, who were they? And so the bride confronts her husband, who claimed that the guests were on their way. 
Think about that. Uh, the bride's friends also begin to question the other guests who were present, and they all insisted, you know, we're friends of the groom, but none of them could actually explain their connection. And so suspecting that something was up, the bride actually called the police, and it was soon discovered um, that these 200 guests invited by her fiancé were all strangers. They were hired and paid by the groom to attend the wedding. Now, interesting enough, the groom was arrested there, and the story doesn't end because later in the week, the local Chinese paper reported that the groom was charged with fraud because he you know, swindled the, the family out of $200,000. Uh, he claimed he needed money for some sort of capital turnover at work, and so he first borrowed $76,000 back in 2015 from the family, from the parents. And then he actually demanded $135,000 as dowry money to buy their daughter a car. And so the bride is interesting. In one article, she's quoted as saying, He was nice to me, always paying the bills and tending to my needs, <laughs> of course. But now, I've, as I think of it, we had no common friends, and the parents I met were probably also hired. Adding insult to injury, the police found out that the groom had just turned 20. When you think about this, which is actually below the legal marriageable age in China, which is actually 22 for men and 20 for women. And so this meant that not only was the whole wedding and the, the guest a fraud, it also meant that the vows were invalid. And, uh, you, get, you know, how unpopular do you have to be here to feel the need to hire strangers to pose as your friends on your wedding day? And, like, who are you trying to impress? Well, today, I want to introduce to you the most unpopular of all the prophets. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I want to present to you famous Amos. Yes, the most despised man in Israel. And the noticeable difference with Amos and the rest of us was that he wasn't trying to be popular in the least. He was just sharing the message that God placed on his heart. Now, we're walking through the Minor Prophets. And all we do is we're asking five simple questions uh, regarding the books. Who wrote the book? Where are we in history? Why is this book so important? What's the main message? And how do I apply it to my life? So what I want you to do today is open your Bibles to the book of Amos, which is right after Joel where we left off last week. Again, who wrote the book? Well, I think it's clear. Amos, whose name literally means to carry a load or to carry a burden, was unusual amongst the prophets and that he's not this vocational prophet like most of the other guys that we have already studied. In chapter 1, Amos, he tells us that he's a, a normal blue-collar worker guy, sheep farmer who also uh, tended to a field of sycamore trees. You know, he lived in a small town approximately 15 kilometers south of Jerusalem. He was clear in his writings that he doesn't come from a, a family of prophets. He didn't even consider himself a prophet. He hadn't gone to seminary to, to write sermons for a living. He was just an average Joe doing his job when the Spirit became so burdened on him when he looked around and saw what was going on in the nation that he actually couldn't stay silent anymore. Amos's connection to the simple life of the people made it um, its way into the center of his prophecies as he showed a heart for the oppressed and being a voice for the voiceless in the world. <coughs> what we do know is that Amos was one of the most unpopular prophets in history. Because what he did is he actually brought a message of warning during a great time of national prosperity. So where are we in history? 
like the other prophets, um, he prophesied of the coming judgment against uh, Israel and Judah. And he came from the southern kingdom of Judah, but he delivers his prophecy almost to the entire northern region of Israel, but also to the surrounding nations. Uh, he prophesied in the time before the exile, and his message is similar to the prophets that we've already encountered so far. And so um, his, uh, this is approximately 800 B.C. Jeroboam II is the king. Israel is still surging in its pros uh, prosperity that it gained under King David and King Solomon. Uh, Jeroboam's reign had been quite profitable for the northern kingdom, at least in a material sense. But the moral decay that also occurred at the same time, counteracted any positives from the material growth. And so Israel is also unchallenged. It's a dominant military power in the region. They controlled the trade routes uh, through the Middle East, which had led to a financial boom, and they were at peace. And so when Amos shows up, he shows up with a warning, a warning about this coming financial disaster and a military destruction. And it seemed utterly unrealistic to his hearers. In fact, some of the things he said simply sounded unbelievable. So why is this book so important? He was fed up. You know, most of the prophets, you know, they interspersed redemption and restoration in their prophecies against Israel and Judah. While Amos devoted only the last five verses of his prophecy for any type of restoration or hope. Like, he was done. And he let loose. And so prior to that, God's word through Amos was directed against the privileged uh, of Israel. People who had no love for their neighbor. People who took advantage of others. Who only looked out for their only concerns. And so Amos is actually considered one of the, the, the first prophetic voices of social justice. He was calling people to account. And more than any other book of Scripture, the book of Amos holds God's people accountable for their ill treatment of others. It repeatedly points out the failure of the people to fully embrace God's idea of justice. As a matter of fact, they were selling off the needy people for goods. They were taking advantage of the helpless. They were oppressing the poor, and the men were using women immorally. They were drunk on their own economic success and intent on strengthening their own financial positions. And the people actually lost concept of caring for one another. Amos rebuked them because he saw that, uh, that in their lifestyle it was evidence that Israel actually forgot about God. And so what's the main message? The message of Amos is somewhat different from the rest of the prophets. As a matter of fact, he's kind of singled out as being unique. And the message of this book is to basically to declare the impartiality of God. In other words, God doesn't play favorites. He makes no allowances for one person that he will not make for the other. He doesn't give any more to one than he does to another in accordance to the promises that he makes. Any who are willing to fulfill the conditions of the promises will find blessings being poured out upon them, regardless of who they are. And any who fail to implement these conditions will actually find themselves in judgment, no matter who they are. So God doesn't play favorites. And with the people of Israel in the north, they're enjoying this almost unparalleled time of success. God decides to call this quiet shepherd to travel from his home in the south and carry this message of judgment to the Israelites. 
The people in the north used Amos' status as a foreigner to actually, you know, ignore his message. You know, however, on the outside, their lives, it, it, it looked like it gleamed with, you know, rays of success, but their inner lives were a sinking pit of moral decay. And rather than seeking out to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly, they, they embraced their arrogance, they embraced their idolatry, their self-righteousness, they embraced their materialism. And so when you look at the book, there's a simple way to actually divide the book and the message of Amos. The first six chapters... Uh, is the message, uh, chapter 7 to 9 at the end, is actually Amos' visions. So those first six, six chapters are one unit. Um, it's actually like a sustained sermon that Amos, Amos preached on the uh, feast day in Israel. Uh, Amos chapter 1 tells us that during the national holiday celebration, he stood up uh, in the, the center of one of Israel's most sacred sites. It was Bethel, and he started proclaiming the Lord's judgment on six surrounding nations, and they were all enemies with Israel. So here he is in the middle, and he's talking about all the enemies. And this is well received by the people, by his hearers, because one of the fastest ways to build relationships with someone is to really complain together about the same people, is it not? Right? Everybody likes to hear judgment about their enemies. We want that. And I'm sure this crowd, were, they were all nodding their heads. They were all saying, yeah, preach it, brother, amen. But in chapter 2, he suddenly turns and he starts talking about Israel's sin. That didn't go over as well. He tells them this. He says, this is the charge against Israel. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, what he's saying is they exploit the poor. See, silver was a symbol in those days for a loan or a huge debt. Uh, the world's economy in Amos's day is changing. And up to this time, Israel sort of existed mainly as a collection of localized farmers. But to keep in the new world economy, they had to focus on mass producing, you know, a few specialized cash crops. You know, and again, that's fine. A few people had figured out, really, how to rig the system through monopolies or inflation. And what happens then, it starts putting these local farmers, the rest of the farmers, into deep debt. And things were so bad that the poorer people were going even further into debt, uh, they, so much so that they couldn't even afford to buy a pair of shoes, is what he's really referring to here in the scripture. And in those days, there was no such thing as declaring bankruptcy. You know, if you couldn't pay your debts, you went into forced servitude. In other words, people were having to sell themselves into slavery just to stay alive. Others were simply apathetic towards those who were suffering. They lived lives of ease, they, of comfort, of luxury, and they were living it right in the face of suffering. And God sees this as a breach of injustice. In Amos chapter 3, God pleads with Israel to repent. Chapter 4 then chronicles the fact that Israel refuses to repent. And the effect of this refusal is Amos warming, warning them to prepare to meet the, your God in chapter 4 verse 2 maybe you've heard the phrase prepare to meet thy maker well this is where it comes from you know those are heavy words chapter 5 we find Amos's funeral song for what's going to happen to Israel culminating in the fact that God even ignores their worship then in chapter 6 we have a, a last gasp to get Israel's attention they're astonished they um, they're in ease, so to speak. 
you know, they felt at ease because the, co- the economy was good. They, everybody was in peace. There was no worries. And they thought that life could be no, no better. But actually, life could be no worse for them. And finally, the book concludes with several visions in chapters 7 to 9 to further warn Israel. There's the visions of the locusts and a nationwide famine and a consuming fire, which you know, is interpreted as a total destruction. There's a term called a plumb line, which is the certainty of destruction. Chapter 8, Amos mentions a fruit basket, which is actually this imminent doom. And finally, in chapter 9, the fact is that in this judgment, nobody can escape it. And the significance of this progression is that this judgment coming is certain. And the opportunity for repentance has now passed. And this was Amos's message. And certainly, he's not Mr. Popular. So how do we apply this to our lives? Now remember, when we're looking at the minor prophets, look at it as a mirror. And with that in mind, in today's culture, we tend to put helping the needy under the heading of charity, don't we? You know, everyone can afford to give a couple of bucks for a good cause. See, but according to Amos, God sees a failure to help the poor as injustice, which is actually a more serious thing. The word for justice occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament, and it usually you see it when it involves four classes of people. And these four classes are constantly brought up. It's the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, and the poor. One commentator calls these the quartet of the vulnerable. Now, the widows, the orphans, foreigners, and the poor. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. One scholar says that in the Old Testament, justice is not just putting down the oppressor, but it's also helping to lift up the oppressed. You know, the the just person in the Old Testament is the one who sees his or her resources as belonging to a whole community. It's sort of like a gift they've been given to help steward for the benefit of the whole community. It's for everybody else. I may have it, but I'm here to help everybody else. But in those days, you know, in Amos's day, people didn't see it that way. They saw their riches as theirs. It was to be used for their benefit, and so they were oblivious to those who didn't have them. And the most politically incorrect verse is found in Amos 4.1. It says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring that we may drink. You know, he refers to the housewives of Israel as the cows of Bashan. That takes boldness in preaching to a whole new level. I'm just throwing it out there. You know, one commentator actually said, well, obviously this, the, the, the image didn't mean what it means in our language today. And I'll say yes, but he still called them cows. These women, Amos said, spent their days spending their husband's money pursuing luxury when people were suffering all around them. They didn't have to work, which, you know, which is fine, but they cared only about fashion and vacation, staying in great shape, eating organic, driving nice camels, and they spent their day doing those things while people around them were literally starving and dying. 
Israel was also undergoing their own version of a sexual revolution, and God's people were just going along with it. Amos calls them out. He says, They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane his holy name. You know, it's one thing to be a perpetrator, but it's a whole other thing to turn your back on the evil that's being done. And the problem with the rest of the population here is that they turn their backs of what was being done, and in doing so, they are also complicit in the crime. And then God, you know, maybe, he, he says this, really maybe the worst part of it all, he says this, I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were as tall as cedars and strong as oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets among your children and Nazarites from among your youth. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, which they're not supposed to, and command the prophets not to prophesy. And so what he's saying here is, look at Israel, I delivered you. I saved you from Egypt. I, I, I saved you by grace. And you respond to all that by ignoring and even exploiting other people. And I think really most infuriating to God in all of this, Amos said, is that they did it while remaining fervent in their religious devotion. They came right in to the temple. They acted in their worship like nothing was going wrong around them. And it was Isaiah who prophesied that right after Amos. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I think one of the things that we need to understand is that a failure to show concern for the poor shows a misunderstanding of the gospel. A real or a true Christian, and I struggle with having to say it this way, but a true Christian simply can't be passive about hunger or sickness or oppression or injustice. You know, if you've never woken up to injustice, if you've never been moved by compassion, if you're not generous, then it actually begs the question of whether you have ever really encountered the gospel of Jesus. Well, those are harsh words. Yeah, I, I know, but I, I have to say them. Like Matthew 25, remember the story of the sheep and the goats, and Jesus says, you know, I was and you you did. Like, I was thirsty and you brought me water, right? He's not saying that the way you have a relationship with him is that you do these things. What he was saying is that the way that you can tell people have a real experience of grace is that when you see people in need, you pour your heart out for them. And Amos communicated God's utter disdain for the hypocritical lives of his people. I, I this passage troubles me. Listen. God speaking, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. If we're not compassionate, 
and passionate about delivering people from oppression, then our religious experience, even if you're in an insanely religiously busy person, is either shallow or fake. And our faith is not accompanied by, if it's not accompanied by compassion, if our faith is not accompanied by generosity and a commitment to justice, then really, then what is it? Remember the mirror. Remember the mirror. It's as if you come to church and, and, and sing songs of God's praises, but their hearts are a million miles elsewhere. And that's because that's demonstrated by what occupies us by the rest of the week. Because you know that what you really believe about God is really not demonstrated by how loudly you worship on Sunday, but by how you live by the rest of the week. It was Tozer, A.W. Tozer, he said this. He says, Christians don't tell lies. They just go to church and sing them. Reminds me of a story I heard about a woman in church who was so excited to hear that the pastor was going to preach this old-fashioned sermon about sin. And so he started talking about drunkenness and he's going off on pornography and she's shouting, amen, preach it, pastor. He starts talking about corruption in Ottawa and she, she's, just, she's there, preach it, let him have it. And she turns to her neighbor and she says, he's on fire this morning. He continues on, he starts talking about the sin of gossip and then she leans over to her neighbor and says, he just needs to mind his own business. Remember, the reflection in the mirror between Amos's day and ours is not a hard one to see. You know, I can stand up here and, and, and I can talk about the moral corruption in Hollywood, the, the violence and the degradation of women depicted in certain genres of music or in video games or how vulgar TV shows have gotten, right? That's a good word. Uh, I could preach about the secularist agenda being crammed down our throat by the media and the education establishment. I could preach about politicians who are misusing their p positions in our country to curtail our religious freedoms. I could address fatherlessness in certain communities or racism or the evils of terrorism or the wickedness of religious persecution in places like China or North Korea. I could talk about how bad all those things are and when I do people will be saying amen and preach it just like Amos's audience did at first. But what happens if I turn the spotlight on us? How many of Israel's sins do we also see replicated in the church? We live in a country where over history, let's be honest, ju justice has often been perverted in favor of the rich. Where too often we've seen the underprivileged or minorities oppressed and at times even treated like they were subhuman. I think of how we treated First Nations people. Just in the simple need of not providing them clean water to drink on the reserves. Or how they've been treated differently before judges or even in residential schools. We live in a country where if you have the means, you can work the justice system to your own benefit. If you just have enough money. And there's still plenty of evidence that this continues to happen. It's not everywhere all the time, but certainly in enough places that it should bother us. You know, and maybe we're not guilty of it of ourselves, but do we show empathy for those whom it's happening to? 
And are we responding like we would if it was happening to our kids? Can can I be honest this morning? Some of you are going, I'm not sure. I'm talking to a group of people for who, the most part, has grown up in privilege. Much like the people of Amos' day. And for some of us, it's been the privilege of being a part of the majority culture. So we tend to get the benefit of the doubt when others do not. And for others, it's the privilege of getting a good education or having a good job or growing up in a country where you've actually had lots of opportunity. Even being lower wage in this country carries with it privileges that some of the richest in many parts of the world don't have. Trust me, I've I've been there. I've seen that. All of us here are privileged. And let me be clear. Usually there is nothing immoral about being in a position of privilege. Nothing that you should feel guilty about. But justice demands that we use this position of privilege to help empower those who don't currently share it and to make sure that they are treated equally under the law and that the doors of opportunity stay open to them just as others. You know, we love talking about the sins of other people, right? It's easy to point the finger. But I wonder if Amos would say the same things about us as what he was saying about Israel. And I, I know talking about our sins will not make me a popular guy. You know, I was wondering if I was working on this, if somebody would actually get up and walk out or at least compose an angry email in their head. And, well, if so, my email is jerry at soulsanctuary.ca. Knock yourself out. But here's why we have to address this. See, God makes this clear to Amos. If you don't want my presence, or sorry, if you want my presence, you will take sin seriously. If you want my presence, you will take sin seriously. And people who treat sin lightly don't take God seriously. And believers that tolerate sin actually begin to alienate Christ. And that's the charge that Amos is making. And unfortunately, Amos' voice was not the only one heard in his day. There was another preacher. His name was Amaziah. He he also claimed to speak for God. And he directly opposes Amos in chapter 7. He tells the king that, you know, Amos is a troublemaker. He's a little farm boy from the south. Let's get rid of him. And he goes on to convince the king to banish Amos. You know, there's a thought out there that the closer you are to the centers of power, think about this, the more likely you are to ignore injustice and to defend the status quo. And here's some sad history, especially after Black History Month. In the days of slavery and and, and segregation, many conservative Christians and churches were complicit with the status quo. The first decriers of racism and slavery were the Quakers. Were the, they were the, the, the Anabaptists who were these marginal groups. They were on the fringe. They were far from the cultural and political power centers of the day. And the majority Christian culture, who had actually v- many good people in them, were mostly silent on this issue at first. Now again, thank God the reason 
the, the, the reform's work was because eventually the church repented and realized how inconsistent these things were with what they believed, and they got involved. But it was still, it was a struggle. And I think we can go back and we can look at some of our theological heroes of the day. Guys like Jonathan Edwards, guys like George Whitfield and others. You know, many of them didn't speak out. But they went along with slavery in their day. In their works, you're going to read the most beautiful description about the fatherhood of God or our adoption in Jesus Christ. And you know that right outside their window was a slave that they were just blind to. Were they really bad people? No. They just didn't think about it because it didn't affect them. They were in places of privilege and power. And they just ignored it. They were fallible men and women, as we all are. And I wonder sometimes if I would have been the same way if I grew up in that era. So confessions of your pastor. I'm not some bastion of courageous virtue. I tend to be blind on things that don't affect me. And so we need to have open hearts, open hearts to the Holy Spirit, filled with humility, committed to the Scriptures, in order that we can also see our blind spots. In regard to Amaziah, there are a few things I want you to see today. Listen, I'll tell you this right now. There's always going to be pseudo-preachers, the guys with the fake doctorates, Right? the bishop, the apostle, the whoever you want to call them, the vloggers, the YouTubers. And they're ready to tell our generation whatever they want to hear. And I'm not a perfect preacher. I need my notes. And I have a lot of blind spots in my own life. And actually, really, you need to pray for me that I have clarity and that I have courage. Because by the way, this is why I'm committed to just teaching through the Bible. You know, the following an expository way rather than going through a topical approach because I know in doing so, God's word will confront us with things that I don't even think about at times. You know, if I get up here and I do only these great creative topical series, I'm just going to end up affirming you all the time. You know, I'll just stand up here all the time and tell you, you know, you can be more than a conqueror. You're a victor, right? Great. That's partially true, but if we let God's word guide us, we will hear not only what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. So pray for me. Pray that God gives me the courage to faithfully preach both the popular parts and the unpopular parts of Scripture. Both the comforting and the offensive. To give you the words that fill us with hope, but also the ones that maybe fill us with anger. Words that not only just affirm, uh, but also confront our own demons. Because like me, you know, let me tell you, like in my heart, I want to be popular. Honestly, I I want to be liked. You know, why do you think in in the first and second gathering, in the live gathering, as people walk out, they're going to get a bag of famous Amos chocolate chip cookies? At the end of the gatherings, why? I just want to be liked. It's an easy way to soften the message. I think you you need to know that daily I feel the pressure to conform to culture so that I and our church will be more popular. 
but I know that I will only grieve and drive out the presence of Jesus if I succumb to that, and I don't want to lose the presence of Jesus. Amos is called the prophet of social justice. You know, the man who demanded that man treat their fellow man rightly. Progressive Christians love this book because of these thundering pronouncements against the social evils of Amos' day, and, and rightly so. Because God is always disturbed by social injustices. But what most progressives miss in this book is Amos' appeal to the people. He doesn't just say to them, now stop doing these things. Now just stop. He doesn't. Well, he says that. But that's not all he says. It's how to stop doing these things. That's the important message. And we find it plainly given in Amos 5. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile. Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. See, it's double-sided. The answer isn't just to clean up your life. It's to seek God and live. To come back to God. To repent, right? And to think again. To turn. To come back to God. To call upon him. To ask him to set you back on your feet, to straighten out your life, to turn you around, to give you a new heart, to give you a new passion, a new compassion. And that's the answer. And that's always God's appeal. Come back into a relationship with the one who loves us, the one who has patience and tries to awaken us and, and brings us back to himself. Why? So that we can be released to go out and to make a difference. And unfortunately, Amos has to call out those who are at ease in chapter 6. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. He calls those out who are just playing through life, you know, just, just rolling through. There's so many others all around them suffering, but these guys are just rolling through, and it's no different than in our culture today. You know, we have people who care enough to repost things on Facebook and other social media. You know, they like the heck out of certain things, Right? but they never do anything about it. How do I know you ask? Good question. Because I actually have challenged people. I have a pet name. I call them slacktivists. They're kind of activists, but not really. They're slackers, right? Let's talk for a minute about the amount of people around the world who have never even heard the name of Jesus. You know, this is a position of privilege that if you're a believer watching right now, we all occupy. It's the greatest position of privilege. And you know that the gospel maybe has saved you and me from sin, from death, from hell. But there are these people in the world who have never heard it. Don't we owe it to them? Paul says in Romans 1.14, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. Why? Why? Because Jesus saved me. Because Jesus saved him. I owe the gospel to people who haven't heard it. I'm no worthier than others. And so with that experience of grace comes an obligation to share it with others. 
And it's not fair to experience that kind of grace and to keep it with yourself. And so every saved person on this side of heaven's not to do so, it's more than just a lack of compassion. According to God, it's a breach of justice. So where does this all leave Israel? What's going to happen to them? In chapter 8, they're called a, a basket of summer fruit. And this is a a reference to overripe fruit. So it looks fine on the outside, but at the core it's rotten. And so one bite, and basically you regret the day that you were born. And God says, you look fine on the outside, but you're ripe for judgment. And then comes the last final scene, almost pictured by the prophets. A scene of beauty, of peace, of, of glory, and it reveals what God wants, and therefore why God is angry at hypocrisy. But listen to these words. It says, in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. And I will rebuild it as it used to be. Did you know that this is quoted in the New Testament? Acts 15. It's at the first council of Jerusalem when they were wondering whether God would save Gentiles without the law of Moses. James stood up. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And the word of the prophets are in agreement with this. And as it is written, and he goes on and begins to quote this verse in Amos. And that was a picture of Jesus' coming, representing the house of David and the raising up of Jesus, the word was to go out amongst all the peoples, and God would bless the world through him. And this comes, uh, the, then this beautiful scene at the end of Amos in chapter 9, verses 13 to 15, which is the picture of these, these millennial days when Israel shall have and be at last restored to the land, never to be removed again, but to have peace. Why? Are, because, or why? Because the start of what Jesus has done. Soul sanctuaries. Injustice permeates our world. And yet as Christians, we, we often turn a blind eye to the suffering of others. And sometimes we justify it and we say we have more important work like praying or preaching and teaching. But the book of Amos reminds us that those works, while unquestionably central in the believer's life, ring hollow when we don't love and serve others in our own lives. It's not one or the other, it's a both and. And the prophecy of Amos should simplify the choices in our lives. Instead of choosing, you know, do I, do I pray or do I do service, the book of Amos teaches us both are essential. And God has called Christians not only to be in relationship with him, but also in relationship with others. And for those Christians whose tendency has been to focus more on maybe the invisible God than on his visible creation, Amos pulls us back towards the center where both the physical and the spiritual needs of people matter in the scheme of God's justice. You know, it feels weird for me to call our worship leader and musicians up here after a passage in which God just said, I hate the noise of your songs. But that's the point. Singing is not just what we do to close the service, right? The gathering. The song is of no value unless it's actually accompanied by surrender and worship. 
There's a little glimpse in Amos of what repentance looks like. He says, seek good and not evil that you may live. Then the Lord your God, the Almighty, will be with you just as he is. He says, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts, and perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. And then he also goes on to the call of change. He says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Can we humble ourselves before God now? Can we let the Spirit work on our hearts? Can we let Him unearth the sins in our hearts as our musicians come? And before they lead us in a song, let me just pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for this look at Yourself. We thank You that You are a God who does not change. When we deal with you, Lord, we deal with the one who is faithful to us. And I think what joy this gives us as we find in our own hearts a hunger to be made pure, to be made right before you, to to stop at nothing so that we might be what you want us to be. So God, I pray that you would teach us um, that your eye is ever upon us, not merely to look at us as a policeman, but to, or to haunt us or hound us. But God, you're there to bless us and to remove us from that which is harmful to us in our relationship with you. God, heal us and restore us in grace. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Soul Sanctuary, now go from this place with a renewed inspiration to do the work of God. Seek good and not evil love goodness, and establish justice. Speak out for the oppressed and for those who don't have a voice. And this is the greatest offering that we can make, letting justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Go in peace with love for your neighbors. Now go and live the church, and we'll see you next week.